Hello there. Welcome to Rome FM. Here we dive into the minds, workflows, and machinations of the Rome cult, the believers of Rome research. My name is Norman Cella, and I am on a mission to deconstruct wisdom from all walks of life so we can understand each other better. In this episode, we talk with Abe Prasanna, who is the founder of Rome Bounties and is an active Roman in the Slack and the Twitter Roman community. Abe is always up to date when it comes to everything related to CSS and adding in visualizations to one's Rome graph to make it look prettier, more functional, and much more. As someone who has created one of the most used Rome themes, Dracula Pro, which is an adapted set of colors from another team, Abe has been on a long journey to explore himself through the usage of Rome. So we talked about his life before Rome as a management consultant, and once he discovered the tool, he gained a vision the perfect notebook with the perfect workflow. His daily notes workflow, where 90% of his blocks live only in his daily notes, probably the most fluid workflow I've ever heard on this show, which gave me a lot of insight. So we discussed a lot about that, how aesthetics play a part in him viewing his own knowledge graph, which is in relation to learning about CSS and implementing all these beautiful colors for Dracula Pro and serving as inspiration for other eager Romans to build their own CSS themes and making time not to just consume, but to actually write about these said connections so that you can build evidence on your true self, answering the questions that really define who you are, tackling the voice of the unreliable narrator, being able to articulate yourself truly and combating cognitive dissonance. What do you really want from your Rome graph and how does that affect you in life? We jumped from algorithms of thought to algorithms of feeling and dropped a number of terms from closure into conclusion and continuity of contact and even exploring rationality and the logical mind. So without further ado, let's dive into this wide-ranging chat with Abe Prasanna. Gotta be very honest, like I prepared very little mainly because I trust that our conversation is going to be pretty free form in terms yes. of talking about Rome and like linking everything together. Technically, we haven't properly talked directly at, at each other, except maybe just a couple of words here and there in like previous events, like previous Zoom events. Maybe. I think so. That's correct. Yeah. That's spot on. Yeah. I don't feel so awkward with you. Because I think I've I've seen your name and I've seen you on Slack and I've seen you like maybe your name on Clubhouse and all that. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's Abe. Yeah, cool. Right. So I think it would be perfectly awesome just to get right into it. And, you know, if you're OK with that, if everything is fine, uh, do you have anything to ask before I just. No, I really like the way you framed it. Let's just have a conversation. Awesome. <laughs> OK. It. I feel like you've done so much for Rome in the Slack and in Twitter and with Rome bounties happening all this crazy stuff, like all these crazy developments. And you're like right in the middle of it. Even if I do my best to prepare as many questions as, as I possibly can, I feel like a lot of those are already answered. If someone were to follow you extensively, they know what you're paying attention to. They know what you're building, etc. But genuine conversation, I do not know about you before Rome. So I would mm. love to start there, like the origin story. <laughs> what were you doing before you became the god of CSS? <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, I'm proud of having achieved that title and I'm going to put that on my resume. But uh, <laughs> you know, before Rome, uh, I, I think the, the sort of fast forward is 
I grew up in India. I really was an engineer. I used to work on oil rigs, basically, you know, running equipment down oil wells and getting oil out of the ground. Got a bit tired of that and decided to do an MBA. And that kind of brought me to the States and did a couple of years in the MBA, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. What I was fortunately able to find myself into was this world of management consulting. And so I joined a, one of the large firms and did a bunch of projects and you know moved up the ranks for the past several years. And when Rome came out towards the end of last year, uh, well, beginning of last year, really, yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah. a little bit crazy how time is flying. <laughs> but I, I think what really struck me was that, and I've kind of tweeted about this too, and you might have seen me talk about it a bit, is that I felt literally like it bubbled out of collective experience, right? I know that corner is sort of the a visionary and the vessel for having brought it into fruition. But I found that there's little breadcrumbs of what Rome, I think, has manifested into that I can think about in the past, right? I, I always had struggles with writing. I always had struggles with finding a tool that would be sticky in a way that didn't require me to coerce myself to use it. Uh, I always felt like I had a relationship with things like OneNote and Evernote and everything else where I would open it up and there'd be this vision of this perfectly organized you know, notebook with a, a workflow that I set up over time and this and that. And something just wasn't clicking. And those things just ended up you know, lapsing into oblivion. And right. I think there was also a big journey that I was going through over the past 10 years of coming more to terms with you know, my experience of life itself. And what this whole thing even is. And, and so there's a lot of spiritual and mystical experiences that I've had. And there's been a sense of how does all that connect to knowledge? And there's sort of this idea of knowledge emerging out of experience, but also experience pointing towards really not knowing as, as a much more appropriate modality of approaching life. So I feel like Rome sits between this in a very interesting way, because I have no idea what I'm going to write every day. I don't have any plans. It is the experience of the day in the daily note that manifests itself in Rome. But it, it's been like this interesting emergence from, from my own experience, from our collective experience. And, and now, you know, we're writing history. <laughs> so, so that's a little bit of my individual story of coming into Rome and, and my life before that. So management consultant, you know, serve a lot of energy companies, do work in operations and digital and analytics, you know, lead multiple teams. And then, you know, by night, I'm, I'm sort of uh, thinking about how to tweak my, my Rome theme and how I'm <laughs> going to use Rome to actually build my own personal uh, knowledge base. Maybe if I get some time, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. When you're not working your knowledge base, you're adding in new themes, adding in new interesting features to visualize the graph in so many different ways. I really want to touch on that, actually, that vision. I've struggled with that myself. I think it's, this is going to sound kind of woo-woo, especially for everyone listening to the show. When Rome came to play, it was the easiest low barrier way of resurfacing things that you have encountered and actually presented to you potential patterns. The word potential is very, very important in that sentence because you have that first level of aha moment going like, oh, I did talk about this before and I forgot, right? So this is evidence of my having experienced this before brought up back to me and getting me to think and reflect and be like, this is what I was writing about last year. 
or two months ago or something like that. And even though I may have no plans writing every day, I may just do a brain dump in the morning. I, I don't know how you do your workflow, but I, I do that a lot. It's like going to the toilet like every morning. It's like a routine, right? Except like it's my launch graph, which is kind of the very awkward analogy of letting things out of your mind. But having no plans to write every day, yet still do the act of writing every day because you know that it will come up. You know that the potential connections are now not lost, but are able to be captured meant that you put in the work every day and then you go into the room. I find the balancing of that, like trying to gain clarity over who I am and what I'm interested in, trying to understand the subconscious part of me where I forgot that I was interested in this ages ago. And now it's surfaced up. And now it is here with me again, rather on the pursuit of me trying to arrive at a state of which I know what I'm interested in truly. I have now remembered the memories in which I have arrived at different points before where I knew these things before. And now I'm gathering it all together. And then that's presented to you in this like one giant Rome graph, which is insane. Like it's, it's, it's bordering crazy. And I, I appreciate that you're, you're sharing like that you're vulnerable enough to share that you have no plans writing every day. Because to be honest, even if I have like a daily template and writing workflow, or whatever, I also have no plans writing every day. Like I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to tackle it myself. I'm trying to combat that, but I, I don't like, I don't. And sometimes I feel like growing your own graph is a way of painting your existence with color. If that's a mm. strange way of putting it. Like, I, I don't know, mm. I don't know what you would make out of that, but to me, it feels like that. It's just very it weird resonates. experience. It really is. And I really love what you're, you know, talking about in terms of how pulling back from the past is one thing. But now I, I think someone in the clubhouse used a really interesting phrase, which is you almost have this anticipatory regret for not writing something or not making a connection today because you know it's going to you know, be so much more valuable when you can summon it in the future. Yeah. And so I think the value proposition is so clear when you've used Rome for even for a few months, right? I remember like in August of last year, looking at some of my notes from May and I'm like, that's a different me. You know? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I cared about different things there. You know, I, I can use like Rome portal and look at word frequencies and I notice certain tonalities and I can notice certain sentiments that appeared more frequently, you know, in a given time period. And it's so beautiful to have that insight because, you know, we only live in the moment, right? We're yeah. only here. And and in a way, we are, the part of us is constantly trying to tell the story, but it's an imperfect narrator. And Rome is a little bit more, less imperfect a narrator, right? Because it it doesn't really have its own agenda. And it's just going to objectively relay, you know, what you've shown it and what each moment actually presented to it. So I, I do think uh, there's something colorful about that, right? And it's it's colors that you typically wouldn't choose to tell your own story, but very much were part of your story, right? So it's like the difference between narrating your life and, and being stuck in a posture of having to pick and choose the right parts of your life and the parts of your experience that fit a narrative as an imperfect narrator. And really dropping and releasing in a world with wrong, this need to feel like you need to be scripting and narrating and allowing the narrative to emerge. And Rome enables that. And so I, I like that you're calling that out. Yeah, yeah. Rome is an emergence. Yeah, right. We're using that a lot more in Roman discussion when 
you have these terms that are surfaced up over and over again. Emergent structures. These links emerge. These blocks are emerging. I think we're starting to build this like lexicon of like regular words being used to describe these. So I, I really, I really do appreciate that. And that's like the foundation. What you've just touched on is the foundation of why emergent structures within the tool realm make it so attractive beyond a value proposition. It's more like a saving grace. And like if you use it and then you just remember that you wrote this and then you forget that you know, that is time already done, like time already taken, time already used, time already wasted, time already spent back then. And now it's time to do a little bit of Facebook memories where it's surfaced up and you're like, hey, remember this, right? Like, but a more, on a more deeper level, on a more philosophical level, where you are now not only living the moment, but you are now living the moment in relation to the surfaced up blocks And therefore, your decisions from now on, your thoughts from now on, the blocks that you choose to write something in from now on will become much more richer. You now not only write for the present moment, you write for the entirety of your knowledge graph, which means that you must have much more intention with every single block that is created within your graph. This is when I have a lot of problems. I have a lot of disagreements with people who only use it as a knowledge base, like with an asterisk on that, as a knowledge base but with the structures of previous tools. So massive imports into this tool from like, you know, Notion or Evernote or something like that. I get that, right? I get that. It's so good, right? It's such a useful purpose, but you have already constrained yourself. You've already added constraints to your knowledge graph because you have limited the shape of its form. Like the possibilities in which your graph can grow have now been limited because you chose to look at it through Evernote glasses, if that's a good right. way to put it, right? Yeah. And, but that does bring up a question. How do you use your Roam graph? Like, what's your workflow? I would love to hear like the, the ins and outs of uh, how Abe is using it uh, in relation to his uh, Roam themes. <laughs> I'd love to get into that. Yeah. I think just to respond, I, I would say I fully resonate with the notion that, you know, the word notion is a good one, but like, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's certainly the case that you can use Rome as a naive outliner and, and use none of the killer features that make Rome so powerful and end up focused very much on trying to create this monolithic record of everything you've ever done and everything you've ever read and all of that. Now, the beauty is that that's not excluded, right? Right. Right. A good graph has good fodder, right? It's got some stuff there that, that can grow, right? But it should be seen more as planting seeds rather than transplanting these evergreen notes into a new database. And this is a little bit where I tend to be the type of person that values evergreen a lot less than maybe others do. Right. I think that the process of attempting to produce one is a great enterprise and I respect those who do it. But for me, I look at it as a constant evolution. And as you said about relating and connecting, I think it's the act of making a connection that is the actual work of using Rome. Because everything else you can do elsewhere. You don't need this app to do those things. But making a connection and trusting, and, and the fact that you know that you can make those connections so effortlessly is what makes it constantly a gift to yourself to use Rome in that way, right? And to put something in there. It also makes it more valuable to record things that you wouldn't typically record, right? Like an event, a thought that occurred to you, a shower thought that you might just write on a note and then kind of 
evolve into something that's semi-permanent, right? Yeah. But that process of evolution is itself data. You know, like how it is that you went about creating that evergreen note, the history of it, the literature notes that turn into transient, that is what actually is powerful. It's not the evergreen note itself. And so to me, I would rather have a growing forest in which notes that I thought were evergreen ended up composting and then requiring irrigation from new connections and growing into something completely new in a way that I never anticipated or envisioned. That is beautiful. So there are now new pages and tropes and models that have emerged from my graph that I would never have anticipated to have been things that were important to me. So for example, one one thing that's been a recurring theme for me that I never knew I cared about at all was this idea of marginality and mattering. It started off with a tweet that I read right when Rome first came out that, that posted a PDF that I saved in Rome. And you know, I, I, the title of the PDF was Marginality and Mattering. And it talked about how you can bring ritual and initiation and certain practices to bear in a community to make sure that you know, individuals in the community feel like they belong feel like uh, they're not marginalized and that they matter. And it, it just planted a seed, right? Now, if I had read this anywhere else, I probably would have just had that PDF in a folder somewhere. I would remember that I had read it and maybe I would remember to occasionally share it with people as something that, you know, makes sense. You're calling me out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's like exactly right? how I do it. <laughs> and me too, right? Yeah, that's yeah. how I would have done it any other time. But now what ended up happening is it was a block. It was a block with an embedded PDF below it. Today, it's a page. It's a page that has multiple links. And the reason it evolved into a thing that deserved its own page in which the PDF exists, yes, but now there's ideas, there's places in which I've spoken about this concept, in places that are surprising, right? In contexts that were surprising, the PDF was about education and environments, but I brought it up in the context of Rome cult itself. I brought it up in the context of my own family. I brought it up in the context of my own internal family systems. Right. And, and, and how there are parts of me that are marginalized that can benefit from initiation. And, and it's like so beautiful to see how you can remix an idea and see it potentially growing in environments that you wouldn't have expected it to flourish in. So that links a little bit to my workflow, which is primarily a daily notes based workflow. 90% of my blocks live in daily notes. They're seeds that are planted in the day. And I, I really like how you know, a block that gets created in a daily note has a timestamp of when it was created. So that's the metadata that's relevant. It occupies a space and time in my life. And then within that block, there's usually some tags that are used to contextualize them. So for example, if it's something that I want to consider reading later, I have a block that literally says, consider, I have a page that literally says consider reading, right? And I will usually tag it with some metadata like, hey, this is a nonfiction essay or this is something about finance. And that'll be some things that I'm bookmarking and, and kind of planting and, and remembering that I'd like to look at. I have a pretty, not a high or a low bar, but a medium bar for what I bring in, right? I don't have too high a bar because then you kind of are being too arrogant about what you're capable of curating for yourself across your right. life, like in this one instance, right? And I also don't have too low a bar because then you end up just flooding yourself and having this FOMO for like not recording every single thing that's happening. So I usually end up with about like, 15 to 25 parent blocks in a given daily note. So not too many, right? But it's just things that have happened through the day. I also do writing and I make sure to just mark it. I have a special page that I tag anything that I do my own writing in. It's my own words because that's what, that's what I look at it as. It, it could be any sort of writing, but I know that these are my own words. 
And then I indent uh, my writing below that. And very often I find that my writing is happening in my, uh, you know, over email with someone or over chat and DMs with someone or through a Twitter uh, thread uh, or in Slack in, in one of my like personal community Slacks where I'm, I'm chatting with someone in thread. And so very often what I'm doing is taking all of this writing that's happening organically through the day and bringing it into Rome. Uh, so that it's the transcripts are recorded and, and the context in which I was actually con conversing about this topic is there. But very often also, I will write a Twitter thread in Rome using my own uh, referencing stuff in the past, you know, bringing in things and then publish to Rome as well. So the both types of things happening, right? Writing happening, not just within Rome, but into Rome as well. There'll also be then these moments in which I'm making connections and doing a very limited amount of just Noticing that a block is maturing into a page, it's literally like a Pokemon evolving, right? It's like, <laughs> oh, this thing's been referenced four times. It's ridiculous that I'm using the the, the round brackets. I should be using the square brackets. Like, that's literally how my mind is starting to work. And that's where like the functionality of Rome becomes an algorithm of thought in itself, right? And that's kind of interesting. I want to use that now. Oh my God. I, I think I do the same thing. I think you've just articulated that for me too, because I have tags to describe the progress in which a block is evolving over time. I only page them if I can articulate them as a phrase. So there are two ways to describe the same block there, right? One is describing whatever the idea is in one block. The next is naming that block. I took that from my, I took them from Earthsea, which is my favorite fantasy series, Lagoon, where Beautiful. she used the power of a true name to describe power or absolute dominion or control over them. I think I was inspired by that. So that, so, so when I, when I was thinking to myself, like, okay, like in the previous episode, I would call, you know, a growing note or a thought an ore, like as per a mining analogy. And once you temper it, once you refine it, it becomes an alloy. So like a, something that you can build something with it. Right. I was trying to figure out why, as I was going through my notes, why are some alloys not named yet whilst others are still in development. Right. I, I think it's because there are notes where I'm still drafting them out, but they are so large that I, I think that I have a big enough understanding of them that they are considered an alloy, that they are stable, but I haven't named them yet. Hence, I did not page them. And now that, now that you brought up the, the, the Pokemon analogy, I think I'm doing the same thing, like where you have the rounded brackets are just, you know, blocks of atomic insights that micro level and eventually it'll grow. But then once this thing has been referenced like 20 times or something like that, then, you know, does it deserve to be its own page? And that becomes mm -hmm. a whole other thing in itself, right? And you have this thing where Rome's features are the workflow, if that's a way, yes. great, great way of putting it, right? I think that's the best way to put it. So that means I can't really, add, I, I was trying to find a way to emulate this anywhere else, Nevernote or Notion or Obsidian. Obsidian, I'm pretty sure you can do it. You just have to do be a little bit more finicky. But one thing I realized was I needed multiple layers of identifying something. Hence the brackets, hence the tagging, hence the analogy, the the imagery, right? I needed I needed the the an ounce of imagination to remind myself that, oh, I did think about this before and then bring it up. This is great. This is probably the most fluid workflow I've ever heard in this show up until now. Because we <laughs> like the the definitely the most fluid. And I, I had to give credit to you, like much respect, because it's not easy to talk about. Like it, it is very easy to 
talk about, okay, I have a daily template, you know, thoughts go here, writings go here, my tasks go here, the stuff that's happening, my health and the weather, right? It is very easy to compartmentalize what is happening with every second of your life if you have a template. What if your daily note is the compartment and then from there you let it grow? I feel like I'm learning a lot from you already. Like this is insane. <laughs> it's it's you know I, it's always easy to be the the guy that comes in and and says you know why do you need a workflow just go like this right and and, yeah. and that in itself has some value because that's really but you know it really is true for me because I I can appreciate structure right when it comes to certain things I'm a management consultant right I bring structure to problems and I value structure and I think that clarity of thought requires you to to pin down you know, your thoughts. And there's this whole idea of mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive as a framework for how to think about, you know, different issues in the problem. But when it comes to this relationship with your own mind, you've got to get to a place where you value things differently and you start to value the ritual of doing something before you value a better way of doing it, right? So it's like the thing that I do systematically every single day without fail effortlessly should not be taken for granted because something is working there right like the fact that i haven't missed more than a day or two like maybe like if i end up having a very busy day there's there's no blocks on a daily note right and even then i'll usually go back and you know remember something from the previous day and write it down because i just feel like i want to right because again remember back to the conversation it's a gift to myself so it's not something I have to convince myself to do. It's something I want for myself. Now, the fact that I'm doing that is huge in relation to everything else that I've struggled with in life in terms of trying to create a habit. Uh, and the way in which I've even spoken about it has had this coercive flavor to it, where it's like, this is good for me and therefore I need to do it. And therefore I need to find a way to hack it into my life. Here's something that's just shown up. It's like having a crush on something, right? Where you're like, oh my God, I have to like know what this thing is doing every single day. And mm. and it's a crush that's lasted for a year now and more and counting, right? And where every single day I'm excited to have my Rome graph open and type on it. Now that is something worth protecting. That is something worth looking at and saying, it's good and beautiful just the way it is. And And therefore, before I try to mess with it and before I try to tell it how it should look, I should first learn how to value that. Once I value it, then I can actually approach it with the desire to bring more structure, but that's at the appropriate level, right? Where it's like, I'm not going to mess with the primary axis here, which is that I value more than anything else that I use this and I write. And then within that, what are some, what, where is there space for me to experiment? Where's there space for me to maybe learn and be humble about other workflows? But even there, I'm pretty experimental where, you know, I'm like, let me try this out. If it doesn't work, I'm okay with dropping it. What I'm not okay with dropping is my habit. So Mm. that's a little bit of just, you know, realizing your own utility function. And I think not taking for granted the things that come up effortlessly because they're very easy to take for granted, you know, and it's very easy to actually work against yourself because there's this habitual posture of trying to optimize things that doesn't always realize the value of something coming up effortlessly in this way. It makes me wonder why we bother optimizing it, especially when the features work well, right? Because like, are we optimizing for fun? Thinking that, you know, that that 5% extra productivity is worth the 
not accepting the chaos that you put in into these notes uh, every day, having a little bit of a visual, like extra visual clues on your screen to let you know these blocks pertain to the following parts of your life throughout the day. Mm. Uh, instead of looking at it as just, okay, everything happened in this in this day, as long as it's written down, it's fine. I, I don't have to worry about it. I'll bring it up later in another moment in time. What's interesting about this is, and maybe you have an answer for this, what you just said about learning how to value these notes before even considering structure, before even considering, okay, can I bring order to this? Will this help me, right? Will the act of bringing order to my notes as I write them in every day, help me. Have you ever thought about that question with any other note-taking app? (laughs) Because the reason why I'm asking, yeah, the reason why I'm asking is because I didn't really care about that question in any other note-taking app. And I think it's related to, and I'm going to do like a completely live linked reference in my head right now, my actual knowledge graph to episode one with Stian, who talks about how the features of Rome help change the behavior of the user as you're using it over time. Like, I I forgot the word that he used, but I think he was talking about the design of a door and the doorknob would teach you to naturally hold it and then twist it. And then that's how you learn how to open a door or like the door, the the door knocker or something like that. And in this case, it's like these features, they contain emergent questions that I must answer. And once I answer them, I realized that I've had these questions internally all my life. And once I have an answer to them, everything comes effortlessly. And then my notes are truly valued without even me realizing, right? It like, in the, at first glance, it's just like, oh yeah, you know, the first seven days, it's fun writing down your notes. And then all of a sudden you're like, how does this help with my graph? Can I put this in? Is this PDF worth my time? Should I read these things? Should I be thinking about this? Can I remix this? I missed the day. Can I, can I go back and then write these blocks? Should I nest it under a date to just link it back and then just keep on writing? Everything must serve that graph. I can't betray myself, right? Like the, the, <laughs> habit, the true habit here is <laughs> I don't want to make myself feel disappointed. It, it's, it's scary, right? It, it's scary, but it's fun at the same time. Structure is there for another day. I'm not sure if you have anything to say about that, but I thought I would ask, since you have taken such a large amount of time to value your own notes before going into the world of experimentation, I'm curious about your foray into CSS and introducing a wide variety of colors because I'm assuming that you learned how to use Rome using pure vanilla, like untouched base colors. Was there a moment in time when you thought to yourself, oh, If the highlights and the bold were of this specific color, I feel like I can gain more insight. If the pages were of a certain color combination, I feel like that could change my angle in which I can view them. How did you get into the world of CSS to start building themes like Dracula Pro and everything? I love it. Yeah, actually, it's really interesting. The the, the overall word that was coming up in, in what you just shared was actually the word humility, right? And I think I mentioned yeah. that before as well, but I just want to explain why I think it's it's such a subtle point. And, and it's ripe for misunderstanding, okay? Because the first thing we have to come to terms with about ourselves is that we're completely innocent and blameless, right? There's really mistakes and misunderstandings constantly happening, but they usually have some kind of wisdom at the heart of them. So that's just one thing very ontological that I just want to put out there in terms of my posture. So I, I don't hold judgment 
uh, or berate anyone for what they're going through, right? And and why they do things. But sometimes you can see a pattern playing out that is so familiar to you and that you've sort of had the you know privilege of having stepped away from and noticed why do I do that to myself, right? And, mm-hmm. and then you, you sort of transcend it and then you see someone else going through a similar kind of pattern or an error trap and you want to call that out. And, and I think that's exactly it when it comes to, you know, have I asked that question of myself with other apps? I haven't. And the reason is I was stuck in this pattern of feeling like I needed to be a certain way, that I needed to do things a certain way. And that fundamental lack, a feeling of lack, a feeling of incompletion was what was guiding my action, right? And when you are in service to that sort of posture towards life, there's going to be a, a hint of limited perspective that you have, right? There's going to be a hint of just desperation behind your actions that it's often very difficult to confront. And I think it manifests in relation to note-taking and and our relationship to tools and productivity, everything, right? Because you're sort of, the reason that we try to optimize is because we feel very functional about what we're doing. And if you're doing something functional, you want to do it efficiently. But if you're doing something that's transcendental, do you really care about optimizing or do you care about actually experiencing, right? And is there an optimal way of experiencing potentially? I, I don't know. I think that's arguable. I think experiencing is just experiencing. It's being present with, right? So this is where the journey of noticing functionality and the shadow of optimization and then learning to value experience and being present with is something I, I have a meta value for, right? And you have to have a meta humility that, you know, you're still on that journey yourself. Even though I'm able to speak of it in this way, there are aspects of me that are still very much stuck in a more functional pattern. And therefore, I'm not anyone to stand up and point at other people and say, you're too functional. Stop optimizing. <laughs> it's like, you're that's a perfect, functional. <laughs> yeah, right. You're, you're like, you're, you're way too focused on function and this and that, right? Another aspect of humility is the affordances that Rome provides. And, right. and, you know, I love Stian's point there because the fact is that we're these creatures that are so easy to hack that, that, that these companies know how to design for us and that we are just helplessly smitten by, right? And, and, and we learn things just based on the manipulation of an affordance. And it's a very gentle, consensual, you know, manipulation, but that's what's happening is that just by virtue of using things a certain way, you're, you're changing. And that's beautiful. But again, it requires you to be humble about the fact that that's what you are. You're this you know, meat bag that is absolutely capable of manipulation in those ways. And it's good to know and go in eyes wide open. And, and I think Rome indeed is doing that to us in a, in a beautiful way. And I think even the people who think they're using it right or think they're using it wrong, at the end of the day, if they're using block references, if they're, if they're using transclusion, if they are, you know, using indentation, this stuff is going to make a big difference in and of itself, right? Like indentation and transclusion and backlinks at scale has its own thing, work that it's doing, even with the junk DNA of the suboptimal versions of it, right? And so, and in fact, I think that that has a role to play as well. Like the messiness of it, I think somehow speaks to the, the broader trajectory of it. Because otherwise, when you optimize, you reduce, you reduce things to like this narrow kind of you know way of being, and you optimize only on one or two dimensions. When in fact life is multidimensional, and what we call junk DNA on a couple of dimensions ended up actually being this beautiful fodder for something completely different—a piece of art, maybe, 
right? And so speaking of art and aesthetics is a good transition into CSS yeah. because it's very little of it is functional, right? There is some functionality to CSS. I just want to quickly get out of the way, which is I do spend quite a bit of my time in designing certain extensions to ROM with CSS that I find to be helpful. So certain hover effects, certain things that I am able to just hide away, like, forgive me, but the ROM logo, I find it kind of annoying on the bottom left. I hide that away. There's certain, <laughs> icons that, there's certain icons I don't use on the top right, so I hide those away. So there's a little bit of just minimal, like, let me just get the things that I actually use and use CSS to hide the rest. Then there's certain effects that you can get with CSS. There's certain layouts that you can make happen. You know, we talked uh, today about the masonry layout and how, you know, and, and what Zenit does with its sidebar, uh, you know, configuration that I find to be meaningfully different from what Rome offers with its very like top-down vertical scrolling sidebar, which is, I don't know, I just find it a bit uninspirational, to be honest. Whereas I find the, the way in which I'm able to create this canvas on which these cards are popping up and they each kind of live on their own and I can sort of extend this canvas out. There is something different about how I'm relating to it now. I'm sort of opening up a dimension, which is this horizontal scrolling dimension that doesn't exist in vanilla. And I'm able to you know, tweak things, reverse the order in which pages open in the sidebar. So all of this functionality, I think, matters. And I think that I don't think it's a shiny object. I don't think it's aesthetics. I think it's actually just saying, Rome lets me do this to it. I'm going to do it to it so that it gives me the affordances that I care about. But that is also what you talked about, which is pretty colors and the aesthetics of a nice font and all of that. And for me, it just makes me happy. And I don't need any other reasons. It just makes me happy. It makes me enjoy using it more. When someone showed me a screenshot of, you know, the Dracula Pro theme set, sort of hat tip to the Dracula Pro folks who, who, who manage that color set and make themes, uh, you know, using that color set for all sorts of apps. They've, they've also got an official one for Rome that they've made. But like th those colors just, just made me happy. And I think, Norm, you yourself just looked at that purple and you were like, you know, I love yeah. this. Right? This, this is, I just love purple. So I think... You don't need any excuses or reasons for wanting that, right? And so yeah. when people say use vanilla, use vanilla, I'm like, okay, but it's no big deal to use that exact same vanilla feature set and just change a few of the colors, right? That that isn't that shouldn't feel to you like a violation because someone in the Rome team decided that white would be the primary color and that this strange shade of gray would be the color of the left side bar. And they created a style sheet, and that's what the browser then interprets into colors that are coming into your eyes. And it just so happens that CSS is this thing that enables you to make your own version of it. That's kind of where I would say the aesthetics comes in. Now, having said that, there's a whole other layer to how obsessed I am with CSS yeah. and why, why I, don't, I don't, like this one thing, which is, you know, picking a team that works for you and, and tweaking it and using it for yourself. There's a whole other thing, maintaining a team for everybody else and, uh, you know, sharing it with others and, and then learning CSS all of that. And for me, that was very much a journey of realizing that CSS was a beautiful stepping stone towards becoming a coder. I found JavaScript too intimidating, you know, because I felt oh. like there were concepts there that were just a little bit too advanced for me. But CSS felt like it made sense. It's like, okay, there's this selector, which represents an object on the page. And then there's these things that I can Google which are basically all the attributes of that selector that I can adjust, whether it's its background color, the font size, blah, blah, blah. I get this. I can work with this. And then from that, I was able to learn some ways of pushing CSS to its limits 
to where you know I'm able to create these custom features using pure CSS. And so for me, it became about learning a new language and enjoying that. And Rome just happening to be the, the, the substrate and the fodder of problems to solve using that new language. And then it became a nice little segue into JavaScript where, you know, I had a couple of the Rome hackers, right, sort of show me what they do and, and, and what JavaScript is. I didn't even know what it was. And then they're like, oh, okay, this is like if CSS is, you know, the instructions to the browser on how to paint Rome, JavaScript goes a little further. It's a little bit about saying what to do when X happens, right? And it's, yeah. it's a bit more, you know, functional in that way. And so that was a bit of my journey with CSS. And, and really what has kept me sticking with it, finding it rewarding to keep it up to date with Rome's changes and updating my team and publishing it to GitHub and sharing it with others is others' feedback, which is that they like it and they find it to be helpful. But more importantly, just the, the community that Rome has been this campfire for. And I, I would say even if Rome disappears, if Rome cult and the folks that I've actually met through it uh, continue to do other stuff and continue to, you know, just keep living. Uh, I'm very grateful to Rome for having, if nothing else, you know, and of course it's doing all these great things in terms of its core product and workflows and all that. But if for nothing else, if just the happenstance of it being this campfire of attracting all these folks, I'm just grateful for that. Honestly, when you have a community of folks, yes, you can have discourse, you can have intellectual conversations, you can have shared interests, you can do a collective, you know, sort of knowledge effort. But doing very basic maintenance work, just keeping something up and running is so rewarding in and of itself. You know, just imagine if you were living in a commune, you would connect so much with others, just kind of keeping it up, making sure everybody's fed, right? Going and patching up something that broke. That's really what we're doing with this CSS and JavaScript, right? When somebody, when something breaks in Rome, you're like, oh, okay, I got to update my CSS. So let me, you know, go to my CSS guys and we'll, we'll kind of just do what we have to do. And it's, there's a joy of just living and maintaining and keeping things running that I find to be hugely under leveraged and underappreciated in today's society where we take so much of that for granted. And so I think seeking out those types of things with people that you care about and doing those types of things with people and not just elevating shared experience to something that has to be abstract or intellectual, but can also be humble, can also just be like simple work that we do in service of each other is what I'm actually valuing, right? And so that's the hidden secret of like what I'm actually enjoying when I do CSS work. It's not the work itself. It's, it's the act of service that it represents that gives me just meaning effortlessly again. Especially with this strange, wild, amazing community uh, that is Room Culture. Communal service seems like it's way beyond, oh, I feel like doing this. It's like, what can I do for everybody? And, yes. and then you find, you find a, a level of fulfillment from that. I, I do the same with this show. That's, that's how I feel, right? I see the conversations on Slack. I see the Twitter threads and I notice a certain level of fragmentation. Because people are learning about the tool in their own way. They go through a few sources, like they follow a few key figures in the PKM space. And then they talk about Rome and then they share their thoughts. And then maybe there's a few hackers here and there. And then, you know, that's all cool and all. But what happens if you listen to an hour, two hours of two people using the same tool, sharing about their journey, going through 
all the aha moments, the the conflicts with the features, why they hate the daily notes page, which has actually been referenced multiple times actually in the show, <laughs> uh, which is pretty funny. But that's that's a whole other thing. And arriving at this present time when we're having a conversation such as this to let people know that you now have others to share that excitement of discovering the tool with. And I wanted to, because I, I think I started talking about it with somebody else and and it was just like a random call. It was like 30 minutes or an hour, actually. It was um, with somebody else. And it was actually about starting the show. And I, we were talking about like the mission behind the show. And it was about that. It was to make it so that the journey to understand your affordances and picking up what can serve you so you can serve the world in your own unique way, whatever you build your knowledge graph for. The journey to fill that or to complete that mission does not have to be a lonely one. So the show exists to let people know that, hey, you know, there are other people who <laughs> hate the graph overview as much as you do. Or there are other people who are like, what the hell is a daily notes page? What the hell? Like, or there are other people who who hate the word cult in Rome cult, right? Like right. You, there are agreements and disagreements. You know, I'm not here to like put Rome on a pedestal, even though I totally am like 25 plus episodes into the show. But like, but I really want to present the complexity and the layers of conversations around the tool because that brings in the colors of everybody who is you know from different backgrounds etc put them together and allow you the listener to hear them as they go about their ebbs and flows of their lives and you can learn something from that and everybody wins and i feel like there is service in being able to fill up someone's routine with conversations for a tool that could define or guide them through life since yes. we're going to be putting everything into our own graph what better than to hear from the conversations from others who are also doing the same and every time i every time i think about that like I, every time i think about like you know I, I have bad days where i just don't want to work in rome fm which sounds a bit off but like i really have bad days where i just don't want to i don't want to touch any right. audio editing software. I don't want to like, I don't want to record. I don't want to book a call or guest or whatever. I just like, I don't want to do anything. I just want to read a book or something like that. And every time I remember myself of that mission, I'm like, wow, there are, there are people who want to hear that more. They want to learn more about CSS because they feel that that's part of their graph that they should tackle. Or they, they want to learn how to code, but then they find JavaScript too intimidating. Or they're like, ah, oh, you know, the hacker community or smart blocks is too smart for me. I don't want to think about it. I just want to stick to vanilla. They want to have those conversations, but maybe they're overwhelmed. Maybe they feel shy. Maybe there's a certain level of shame, but I'm here to let them know it's okay. I'm here to let them know, hey, I also, I'm not that good at it, right? Like, I don't know, like, I'm using your theme right now. Like, I'm using Dracula Pro right now, a customized version of Dracula Pro, because as much as I love purple, and I, I love purple because, uh, like you, it makes me happy. On a, and a different reason is that purple is one of the main colors uh, of one of the universities I attended. So it oh. makes me feel more nostalgic in terms of like, oh, this is like nearly the exact same purple that I used that they used in a university in Japan. So I was like, oh, okay. It makes me feel nicer uh, about it because that's like the year that I grew up the most or I matured the most. So I hold that year, like mm. I hold that year up to a pedestal and the purple is a reminder of me. Now I have a customized version of your theme where the pages are purple. And because of that, I, I think Connor has talked about this before. All blocks within a page are considered global blocks. So even if you have the metadata for a block that is created with a timestamp that is put under a daily notes page, it won't be viewed on the daily notes page 
unless you look into the true metadata of that block, right? Mm. Which means that, which means that it, it will only, you, you don't care about it, right? Unless you're like full on technical, you really care about the metadata of each, right. each and every single block. So once he said that all pages are global blocks, then pages are just packages. They're just cardboard boxes of these blocks that just happen to be created on this day that just happened to be right. edited at this time. And there has to be a good reason why I paged them in the first place. I think I came to the conclusion that I wanted to close the time factor of these blocks because I wanted to make it so that time has less of an influence or less of a factor in all the blocks pertaining to this piece, this page anymore. Mm. And the indicator for that in my head is purple. Hence, I edited your colors. And that's nice. why I wanted... Yeah. So that's why I wanted to ask you about the aesthetics, if you know, yeah. colors and how they play a role. Because uh, I really wanted to ask you about, you know, things like, why did you choose Dracula Pro? Or, But you know what? Yeah, screw it. Like, it's, we, don't need, we don't need a deep, complex reason. If it's nice, it looks nice. Great. More than enough. Exactly. And I'm really excited about the masonry layout tests that you're doing with Murph. Extremely looking forward to that. It's game changing. I can't live without it now. I really can't. I really want to. <laughs> I really want to test it. <laughs> I really, really want to test it. Yeah, awesome, awesome. That does come. That does bring up a question. It, it, it's related to a little bit on what you said before, where even if you want to find value in the notes that you create and you want to introduce structure, you're still quite experiential, right? You still like to do experiments. I'm assuming this this layout, or even diving into CSS, or even testing out another extension, etc., is part of a series of mini phases where once you're used to your workflow for a while in Rome, you think to yourself, okay, let's experiment. What should I do? What should I plan for? How long should I do it for? How do you plan for that? Or do you even have a plan for that? Do you have constraints in which you decide on an experiment? Maybe it's like something really small, something really big, and you thought, okay, how much time should I devote to it? And when should I stop or when should I continue? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh boy, Norm, I feel personally attacked by this question because I think it, <laughs> it it hits upon like the shadow of all the stuff that I just like, you know, try to frame very positively and fluidly. The issue is that you can never stop. You can't plan enough and you can't like value stuff enough so that you are asking yourself what the most important thing is. You can't do that often enough. I don't do it often enough. So what ends up happening is something gets neglected because you haven't created a situation in which the only objective is to step back and to ask what feels important. I have a problem with this, which is that what is most immediate, what feels most easy and frictionless to step into and get stuck in is what I tend to default to. So it's very easy for me when the moment Rome updates and some CSS breaks, it is very easy for me to say I have 45 minutes in which, you know, I'm not required to do anything really crazy, you know, before my workday starts or maybe late in the night. It's like time is available. And then it's like this task is asking of me something that I could potentially do of it. And I just jump right in and lean in. So this is where there, there, there's a nice sort of flow to that. But there's also a shadow to that, which is that the only reason it's not coming up is because there wasn't that moment in which it was given a chance to actually surface its own salience to you. And this is a situation that I think we're all facing constantly, is that there are things that are actually very valuable to us that are struggling to compete for our attention. Because there are things that 
we value, but don't necessarily, they don't have the exclusive rights to our attention, you know, by any means. They don't deserve them, but they, they're very efficient at hacking into our attention. And so I would say I have respect for people who warn against extensions and themes and so on and so forth, because there's an aspect of them which is like a shiny object, which is that they they demand these small little curiosities of you, right? They, they, they demand like, here's a little problem to solve. Here's another little problem to solve. And, and it's like, it's very nice because you, you kind of feel like you're playing a game, right? And you're discovering and you're... And so there, there is absolutely something very entertaining about it. There's absolutely something very engaging about it, but it's not wrong unless what it ends up making you do is skip the step in which your sovereignty is somehow respected of saying, hey, I appreciate it. I know that this is something that's demanding of my time and attention. I want to make sure I'm not missing anything. I want to make sure I'm not neglecting anything. It's a little bit like if you have a child or if you have a pet, you know, you have to feed that pet. You have to take care of your child. So those needs are just constant sources of salience. They're like salience engines, right? They're like telling you like, this is important. You know, you got to yeah. do this. But when you don't have that, which we don't always, like, we're kind of stuck between these two worlds, right? Where this is highly salient stuff that demands us. And then there's this like emergent stuff that just comes up and asks of us, you know, in small doses of our attention. And then there's this vast value of things in the middle that gets lost. So in Rome, what I think that is, is the act of connection. It's the act of making time to actually not just consume, but actually write down your own thoughts about something and not skip to the next thing to read just because you're supposed to read it. So like when something is demanding your attention, what I would what I would say I am really striving to do more and more of is to allow myself the space of a minute of just sovereignty, right? Of like, I get to decide what I do. I don't get told what to do by the thing that's asking of me right now. It, it gets to ask me for my attention. And I get to decide when it's appropriate to give it that attention in relation to everything else that may or may not be demanding my attention right now, but deserves my attention. So that's where I would say I am certainly lacking. And I think that there are days in which I neglect certain tasks over others simply because of this dynamic. And I'm starting to really recognize it more and catch it in the act more. One way to do that is to certainly use algorithms of thought. And, and to use you know, your daily notes template to be a prompt for you. And, and so now you notice I'm now doing it for the right reasons. So now when I decide to create a daily notes template, it's not coming from a compulsion of feeling like I need to have one. It's actually coming from a very deep insight that I have about myself that needs to be mirrored in the affordances that my daily notes template has. And that's, I think, the right way to do things is to actually build it up over time and certainly educate yourself about these options so that they come up as potential options when you're looking for an answer and you're looking for a solution, right? Yeah. And I'm worried about that behavior or that that pattern of thought surfacing up like in an average Roman's mind because it's in relation to what is deemed as the expectations of the Roman community. The reason why I'm saying this and and you probably know about this too, because I think uh, Chris from Rome Hacker as well has brought this up. Like now our recent discussions on, on Rome Cult or on Twitter have just been on the latest frontier solutions, which meant that to a certain degree, 
there is less discussions on the core features, the simple workflows, the small features, obviously small features, the main features here and there, which have ample documentation, but we're still not talked about enough to care for people. So as soon as someone who comes in who is a new user or is not that interested in having a deep workflow within Rome and to have suddenly in their minds the question of should I have a daily notes template? And the answer to that being not because I feel that what I require right now is a daily notes template just to organize what is internally surfacing up from the resultant thoughts that have occurred throughout my day, but rather because I see other people having daily notes that I should have one too. Like it's like a very relative, right? That's dangerous, right? Because that's a borrowed algorithm of thought. I actually shouldn't, that's actually a complete lie. There is no such thing as a borrowed algorithm of thought because algorithms of thought are emergent by nature. Mm. You can use other people's algorithms as a reference, but you cannot just copy paste that in your head and then just apply it thinking that, you know, you use it. It's like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if you played RPGs or something and then you have mm-hmm. like a high level sword and you assume that if you just give like a new, a new knight Excalibur, they're going to be masters at the sword immediately like that. Right. No, no, it's not right. You need the experience. You need to know the weight, the length of the tip, the hilt. You need to know what's the best stance to learn it, to use the weapon properly. You know, it's things like that. You can't borrow people's experiences. Experiences are experiences because they can only be grabbed or received once you yourself have done something similar to them. So you have your experiences as a management consultant. You can't just lend me your management consultant experience. That doesn't make any sense, right? Like you can't just be like, hey, can I, can I borrow your management consultant experience? Like, yeah, sure, for a day. And then I wear like, I don't know, like a, like a helmet. They'll just transfer your, your memories. No, that doesn't make any sense. No, you can't do that, right? That's what people are trying to attempt. We like to refer to the workflows of other people to try to think on our behalf because we refuse to answer the questions that stem from the deep insight we need to face or confront to create true firsthand primary algorithms of thought, which will achieve sovereignty. Right. Right. So sovereignty yeah. cannot be like, you can't sell sovereignty. Yes. Right? It's, 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 it's very difficult. Like it, it's very, very difficult. And I don't know if philosophical is the right word for it, but I feel like the pursuit of achieving sovereignty in one's mind, in one's questions, in one's articulation of life will reflect in not only the workflow of your Rome graph, but the accepted workflow of your Rome graph. The extent of which you don't mind the imperfections of that things that you are writing in your in your graph because you still need to accept that you know actually rome is like the tool is like it's perfect like it, it's not that it's perfect it's that it's a great safety net because it captures everything as long as you write it down right. so you don't have to worry about you don't have to play a part in providing order in a rome graph because rome the tool provides order even if it looks really messy and ugly and we'll try to beautify it. We'll try to put makeup on it. We'll try to add more purple, <laughs> but it's still a mess, but it's still a workable mess. Just need to build the habit of that over time. That level of sovereignty, that level of expression is an ugliness that should be revered more because that is the closest analogy to how we look or how we face life as we walk through you know, the stream of time because not everything, not everything is orderly. 
<laughs> not everything is a narrative, uh, like the beautiful narrative that we have to follow or we don't have to prepare so much. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, I, I don't know where, and maybe it's going to be hard to articulate this next part, but otherwise the level of order that we seek or the level of order that we expect, we may come to realize that that is actually an external influence, not an internal mm. influence, right? There's that to think about. But I think you, I don't know, for the, maybe maybe for many Romans, they don't really care about that. They just want to <laughs> yeah. put the notes in their graph. <laughs> but, yeah. that, that's the thing, you know, and what do they care about? That's the interesting thing. Yeah. And the thing is that, again, back to the concept of the unreliable narrator, Sometimes when I say I care about something, sometimes it's me talking and sometimes it's the narrator and me talking, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I've got to learn to be humble about the fact that I'm sometimes lying. I'm not really speaking the truth because the thing that's speaking is not, does not have the full capacity to speak on my behalf. The way that might manifest in the way you relate to Rome, right, is that you may speak about what it is that you want and what you're curious about. And curiosity is not a bad thing. So it's totally fine for you to go and educate yourself on how other people are using their own graph and so on and so forth. But let's say you have a conversation with one of those people that, that seems interesting. And you try to convey to them that, hey, I value structure or I value getting a template in place that is going to be the most optimal way for me to record stuff. And, and you convey this. And then they, they receive that, right? And they receive it in face value. And then they say, okay, the best way for me to serve this person is actually to tell them what that template is. But there's, there's so many levels of lossiness here. The first level of lossiness is in that unreliable narrator that hasn't actually truly represented what you truly value and what it is that you're really seeking because you haven't actually communed with yourself in that way to really be able to articulate that. And then now there's another level of noise, which is that the other person is just trying to help you and they're believing you at face value. And so this is a world in which you can't even say that the advice is bad or what you're being taught is bad because you asked for it. And so then you have cognitive dissonance. And so then everything, you're set, the thing is, you're setting yourself up for unpleasant cognitive dissonance, right? Because of all this lossiness. What is the potential antidote to this, right? So I, I don't know whether I can articulate this very well, but I think I'll borrow from a few people. There's one individual named John Verveke who's been doing a lot of interesting work on YouTube and you know in psychology and in, in the meaning crisis and so on. And he uses this phrase, it's continuity of contact, not closure into conclusion, right? So continuity of contact rather than closure into conclusion. And this is actually an extremely powerful framework for me because I think... For everything in life, there is an aspect of you that is designed to try and resolve it into a conclusion that can be acted upon. It's just mm. the faculties that we have. They, they work well to do that, right? They work well to create heuristics, to create a resolution so that you can act. Because otherwise, in the face of this absolute chaos of life, you wouldn't be able to act. So let us be grateful for that aspect of ourselves. However, there, there is a misunderstood way of relating to that which is to allow it to, to kind of have the driver's seat and constantly be concluding things. And at some point, you've concluded so much that you don't actually need to even be paying attention to life anymore because you already have the answer. Mm. Things have already been reduced to problems you've already solved. So what you want to do in the face of that is you want to maintain continuity of contact 
where this curiosity, this compassion can actually live in the moment rather than be referenced as a pronouncement from the past, right? So you're sort of staying with it. And so then you actually notice when you're out of integrity, when you're not in integrity with yourself, when you're speaking something that doesn't feel completely true. So an example of that might be that, hey, I come to you, Norm, and I'm like, Norm, I want to know about a daily notes template. And Norm's like, sure, I'm happy to show you. And then you start showing me stuff. And I'm noticing, you know, wow, this isn't actually resonating fully, right? I'm noticing those symptoms of cognitive dissonance where I'm like, I should like this, but I'm not really feeling it. And then I tell you, you know, no, the reason I came to you about my daily notes template was actually this. And you're like, whoa, that's actually a much deeper question. Right? Yeah. What you really want is this. Let's have a conversation about that. Right? So this is where we're actually now, you know, mining for something deeper. And I think we're deepened in that way. You know, back to your metaphor about the Excalibur sword, we start to deserve our tools more. We start to like earn the right to to unlock different levels of them. You know, it's a little bit like the bleach. I don't know if you watch anime, but you yes. know, like the ba- the bankai, right? I mean, it's, it's a little like that because you know, what is the what is the bankai released version of Rome? I think there is something like that. I, I think, and I think that you kneel your sword through these types of humble interactions with it where you don't know what you're going to try to get out of it. But, you know, you have these conversations in which you're actually being willing to show something that's underneath your apparent agenda. So that's a long convoluted way. I I threw out a lot there, but it really links to this idea that it's okay to be curious about what other people are doing. Continue to have compassion for yourself in that process, but maintain continuity of contact. Don't lose your ability to call yourself out and to notice when eventually, inevitably, you fall out of integrity and require a deeper conversation to bring yourself back there and avoid the cognitive dissonance that comes from wanting to close things into conclusion so that it's convenient, right? Because then it's internally consistent. It doesn't really need to be fenced to it because you've kind of categorized it as something that you've already solved. Uninteresting, right? Let's actually come to a daily notes page with a fresh set of eyes, right? Tomorrow's another day. It's empty. You don't know anything. And then things that need to serve will serve you because it's behind you and it can be referenced, but you're, you're entering the, the big unknown, right? And that, that I think is the joy really of using Rome and why I think it mystically connects to like living itself. And that's why it's so powerful. Especially when it's forced upon you in the beginning when you're using Rome that at 12 a.m. immediately, brand new daily notes page fresh out the oven and you will have me being very annoyed because i was working on a block on saturday and then all of a sudden i'm forced to go on the sunday daily notes page but that's a whole other story altogether (laughs) that that (laughs) but that analogy speaks really well to what i've experienced i think i came to to the conclusion which is ironically a potential obstacle when trying to face certain observations The conclusion that I require borders or constraints to help me go through a certain flowchart to recognize if I have concluded and if I'm acting on previous experiences and should I continue to do so in any given time, right? Like if I'm looking at a daily notes template and I'm like, "Eh, it's okay, uh, whatever. And then I'm asking to myself, like, why, why am I paying my precious attention to this experience right now? Even though if I were to say, pick the option of 
concluding it and saying, like, ah, oh, maybe I can just be a little bit more productive. And then using it as a reference, sure. And then continue with a contact could mean something way deeper, right? The author of that template can look at it from a certain way. I can gain a certain level of insight. But in order to understand that, in order to receive that insight, that wisdom, I need to expose my frameworks and have them subject to be questioned so that I can reset with a certain level of curiosity. It's like having a blank slate with the daily notes page again, right? It's like right. every time I am faced with a certain aspect of my life, whether it's my personal knowledge management system, how I view health, how I view politics, if I were to have opinions on something, instead of finding something so that it can amplify my current perspective, I must face it as if I would face a completely blank daily notes page and be like, okay, fresh new experience. It's the same topic. What can I write about it now? What questions should I ask? What are the answers that I should write down, right? Should I start imposing my perspective? Should I start questioning my own perspective? Is there something about this source that is inaccurate? Should I question that accuracy? Should I be worried about the trajectory of my life if I were to embrace this new piece of information within my launch graph? That works as a great filter. I've become more strict with the things that I'm putting in my graph as a result of that. But one of the ways where, where I learned how to build those borders, where I realize who the unreliable narrator truly is, is that I've created characters within my head, like become very multifaceted, right? Different voices in my head. This is going to sound really insane for everybody, but different voices in my head represent different facets of my life, right? There's a creative voice. There's a logical voice. There's a voice for asking questions and for curiosity. Right. The character in my head to represent the voice that truly represents continuity of contact is an entity called the fool. Like I have another show called Anti-Fool where I try to be less foolish. All right. So my desperate answer to arriving at the answer of I need to maintain continuity of contact is to actually build a whole podcast about that and <laughs> do my best to break down those rigid frameworks or those rigid habits or those thought processes that force me to conclude everything. Right. I sound really yes. egotistic, right? The more that I, <laughs> the more that I realized that, like I realized like just how arrogant I sounded. I'm like, Oh yeah, I conclude everything, which means like, Oh, I know everything about that. Right. I, I'm just like, Oh, I'll just leave it at that. It's unnecessary. It's insert adjective here. I did not put in the time and effort to further pursue that. And as a result, I am now, bound by the shackles of the limitations that my past self has put onto me. So I become a slave to my past, which is extremely, extremely wrong. Like, at least to me, like, I feel like I'm just disappointing myself each and every single time. Because if I were to be a slave to my past, where I'll just conclude everything because I've seen it before and therefore past experiences will now explain current experiences and I'll just leave it at that. Sure, it would streamline a lot of things, a lot of noise in the world. But what that means is this question will always come up to my head every time before I sleep at night. Have I grown more or have I grown 1% better or higher, or kinder, or more intelligent than I have the day before? And if the answer to that is no, then today was a waste. I, I gave that hard rule to myself so that I try to find the answers to maintain continuity of contact. So I really have to start looking for this. The name that you brought up, John, John Mareki. Uh, yeah. I highly recommend it. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. Th there's really something to this. And I think the, the real beauty of it that I have found in my own experience, when I am in these postures, 
of just willing not to know. And as I said, willing to step into that place of like the only agenda is to figure out what is actually salient, right? Like, I don't know what the answer is going to be. I'm not going to assume I know the answer. I think the answer is X. I think the answer is go and fix the CSS theme. But actually, let me step back. It's like, oh, maybe the answer is something different. And, and, and the beauty of that is the everything that you know and everything that you value doesn't require any work from you to function. Right. Yes. And this is this is the misunderstanding that we have is that we think we need to prop ourselves up constantly and we don't need that. Like, I mean, we are autonomous. It also links a little bit to the whole master and his emissary book where he tries to really flip the narrative around the left and the right hemispheres and kind of poses this view that the rational, logical mind has been made to feel through education, through social constructs, through the way in which I think human civilization evolved to value itself as the driver, as the one that's in control, that in, in a sense, through this misunderstood stoicism, is supposed to modulate emotion and is supposed to kind of do things to do away with emotion. And I think we almost sort of disavowed a whole dimension of experience and perception that has immense value. Right, And not only does it have immense value and information and gifts for you, it is meant to be in charge. And it's very difficult for us to understand that that's actually where our sovereignty is. It's in the felt moment, right? It's in the intuitive, expansive awareness of what is that I think everything is actually felt. And, and then all these other faculties, such as our rationality, such as our logical abilities, and that also includes the things we do happen to know through experience. And it also happens to include the things we know that we don't even appreciate that we know that can also then serve, you know, because we do such a disservice to ourselves because it's not just that we think we know, it's only those things that we think we know that end up having, you know, space to breathe. So I really do feel like exploring this modality of being more and more in the way in which we use Rome, in the way in which we go about our life really can surprise us. And I think it's nice to be surprised. And so in your analogy about, you know, did I grow 1% more? Did I, am I kinder? Am I, more? I think that's beautiful. I think it's really nice because there's such wisdom to that, right? Like to say like the proof is in the pudding, right? Like let, let me see if things are actually happening or am I just like bullshitting myself, pardon my French. But like, I think that there is really something uh, about also including in that this compassion for yourself and, and also including, you know, this flavor of coming to terms with, this journey and and saying, hey, I know I'm probably going to be stuck in this zone of trying to resolve into conclusion. I know that this is part of who I am too. I don't want to disavow that either. Right? I don't want to make the mistake of doing the same thing to it that it did to everything else. Right? I, I think that's a little bit of a trap as well in, yeah. in spiritual journeys or mystical journeys is you can sort of become anti-science, anti-intellectual, anti-rationality. And so I think a little bit of this whole post-rational vibe you see on Twitter which is, is, is as an intersection of sorts with the Rome cult too, I'm sure you've noticed, as that respect for the, the seeds of, you know, what was being built up through our journey and foray into overstretched rationality, now returning to be balanced back with this notion of expansive intuitive awareness and feeling and, and respecting the felt sense, the unspoken sense of our experience as being also absolutely true. 
And speaking of algorithms, a thought, an, an interesting segue into like what Rome enables there is algorithms of feeling and emotion too, right? Like mm. when I, you know, I, I think I presented how I use Byron Katie's The Work, you know, using a Rome template, using actually a spot block, where it's, it's, a, it's a template that, that typically comes in a PDF file or like a printed pa- paper that I converted into a smart block uh, template. And, and it really guides me through my emotional landscape and, and my beliefs and my assumptions around what is actually fueling that emotion. And then coming away with these interesting insights about, you know, what actually governed why I was feeling that way. So powerful. And again, it takes humility to do that work, right? Because it's easy to skip it. Nobody's asking you to do it. You know, your mind's going to come up with 10 reasons as to why you're justified in feeling the way you do, or give you five different distractions to, to, to help you avoid feeling that way. Yeah. And, and by the way, that's the biggest trap we have is we have 10 different ways of just like replacing reality with something else and just constantly papering over it. And then everything else underneath is just lying there dormant and then comes out in an explosion eventually. We all know this. So this is the way with Rome to actually maintain continuity of contact again with all of that emotion, avoid avoidance, sort of continue to grow as as you're pointing. Algorithms of feeling to explore our inner selves using Rome Mm. is still, I feel like we're still at surface level for that. Like even if we're trying to visualize that, we're trying to read our thoughts as blocks or whether we want to articulate the chaos in our minds through transclusion, or whether we find an extension that helps us create a template to give us permission, really, right? Like, to be fair, like, you don't really need, I'm not, I'm not trying to degrade smart blocks here, but you didn't really need smart blocks to create the template, right? You could just rewrite right. the, the, the questions or anything like, it's just, it's just for easier access. or it's just, you know, to just to lower friction in terms of bringing it up again, you know, it's just a couple of shortcuts away. And all of a sudden you are now in self-introspection mode, right? So Rome is a really good vehicle for low friction introspection. And I think that's when you can build the foundation for algorithms of feeling where you can face those questions, which you've been avoiding for so long because you have 20 different distractions around you physically and digitally, because, you know, your phone is just a few feet away or Twitter is just, you know, control T, T, W away, which is basically me because I do that all the time. Yet, when we want to answer the the questions, which are, I don't want to say the shortcut, but probably the largest influence of a worry or a problem that we're having internally that we can't really say out loud, yet we can try to explain them through Rome. Answering them is a different story or it takes so much time that we just want to avoid doing that. But having Rome be the tool where we can confront ourselves instead of looking in the mirror, we look at a mirror in text form, which is our, our thoughts and think to ourselves, okay, I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling alone. I feel internally distraught. Why? 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 And over and over and over again. And maybe you ask why five times today and then two times tomorrow. And all of a sudden, if you page all that together, you have what, like 14 days of 32 blocks trying to explain to yourself, why are you alone in your head and what should you do about it? How powerful is that to have such an amazing tool that can help you accommodate such uncomfortable questions in the most seamless way possible to help you realize just how human you are? 
It's, it's insane. Like, it's, it's crazy, right? It's like the single largest algorithm of, of feeling is being able to see how your soul looks like, if that's a great way to put it, I guess, since we're talking about bleach, might as well. But <laughs> And seeing how you will weaponize your soul to go towards a journey of your choosing, right? Sovereignty is the path that you have decided to do, even if society ceased to exist, even if your background and nationality is just gone. What will you do and how will Rome help you with that? Because in the end, Rome is just a tool, but it's just one of the best tools to actually visualize that for you in text because we're so used to typing our thoughts away on keyboards now at this point, or at least through a device, as opposed to limitations of something more physical, like a journal, a pen and paper, or a notebook. There are limitations to physical mediums that prevent us from looking at these things. Yet Rome is paving the foundation for that. The eventual visualization of our human selves and exploring that and actually accommodating for that. And I think that's just beautiful. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's like the, the two words that come to mind for me are two pairs of words, really. It, it's, it's interesting how when you're in that posture, you know, revelation and illumination are hard to distinguish. If something is revealed to you versus you are illuminating it. It's really the same thing at that point. And, and I think in Rome, the analog is really that, you know, any original thought you have is really an unlinked reference, right? It, it isn't anything more than that. It's really a remix of something else and you just haven't linked it yet. Yeah, we're only at the cusp of seeing this grow over time. So I'm really excited to see what Rome has to offer. And on that note, what are you looking forward to the most in the future for Rome research? Is there anything like any particular tool, feature, development that you want to see happen or you want to test out? Yeah, I think there's kind of two tiers of things. I think there's one which is really, it's time over this past weekend, I think, you know, we've had a few hiccups and I think there's a bit of a sobering thing of like, okay, we're excited. We want to try new features, but maybe it's time to just secure the core and attend to like making sure that everything's working right and it's stable. So the backend upgrades, the sync engine upgrades, you know, some of the more technical things to just keep Roam healthy so that everybody's data is secure and, and you have end-to-end -end encryption and you start to have more ability to like protect and own your own data. All of that, I think I'm excited about it. And it sounds like the team is all over that. I think there's another aspect of things, which is really what the Roam games is starting to show, which I think is like a world in which like Roam becomes, Roam plus Roam cult allows these interesting experiments around the collective stuff, you know, multiplayer economies building up on top of what Rome enables. I think there is, uh, with the whole thing we're noticing with GameStop and Wall Street bets and all this stuff, I think there is a clear push towards decentralization, democratization of, uh, you know, things that were always assumed to be command and control. And I think Rome can be a ally to those efforts in a way that still prevents us from losing too much in the pursuit of that type of revolution or disruption. You know, it's always important to make sure that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so I think, you know, Rome can be a vehicle for change that is a affordance, you know, for folks who want to actually do things that are very bold and disruptive to not only make that happen, but also protect the things that need to be retained and maintained. Uh, I, I see that as being uh, a valuable role that Rome can play in the creation of new systems uh, and so on. That's a little abstract, 
And I think it, I, I, you know, I'm not one of those people that can really tell you on paper what, what it's going to look like, but I can feel it. I can feel that that's coming. And I know that you have built yourself up with the many months of using Rome to be capable of observing that feeling because of all the algorithms of feeling that you have developed uh, <laughs> over time in your graph. So as someone who has been, you know, using Rome for so long up until now, I really do appreciate uh, all the things. I don't even to get to talk to you about Rome bounties, but but maybe yeah. we can save that uh, for another time as we are coming okay. up. Maybe we can talk to you about that another time for sure. Maybe like a live event or something. We'll see. Oh, Rome bounties, fireside chat. Hmm. Okay, well, anyway. But for now, I do want to close off this conversation for now just to keep it on pause with a final question. What does Rome mean to you? Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't have a tagline or a headline for it, but I'd say the feeling that comes up when I think about Rome is gratitude for being shown that I have things to offer beyond the things that I thought I needed to offer the world. I think we all have ideas about like what value we have for the world, right? And how we can serve. And very often that gets built up from your childhood to your parents and through your society and all of these experiences, the things you happen to be good at, the things that you needed to do to kind of move ahead in life. Rome came in with no expectations from me, right? With much to offer me. And then in my interactions with the folks that call themselves Rome cult, I discovered things about myself through the feedback that they gave me about what they valued in me. And what I was doing effortlessly when nothing was expected of me. And I'm very grateful for that because it was truly transformative. And I think I've forever changed in that regard, where I will never, I will never, I think, feel like my life is about A, B, or C. I know that there's things that I don't even know yet that I have to offer. And so that's really what Rome means to me. It's that vehicle for inner transformation and, and this, you know, gift over this past year during this time of like retreat and reflection that we've all been forced into for what's possible. And of course, I'm sure that a lot of people are also on that journey to not have a life tethered to specific phrases, specific terms, specific job titles, specific experiences. But to know that the original sources, original thoughts are merely unlinked references and that Rome can help you step a step up. But you know, you can only get as much value as you put in every day, right? You can only yes. make the most out of Rome in helping you with answering those exact same questions. Who am I? What can I discover about myself? How can I be different about myself every day? How can I face the world in my own unique way each and every morning? As soon as the clock strikes midnight and you have a new daily notes page, what can I put in there immediately? And the undiscovered things are the things that we deserve to see to serve the world. So with that being said, Abe, thank you so much. If we want to reach out to you to talk about anything that we shared in this amazingly detailed, philosophical, heavy conversation, what is the best way to do that? Thank you so much, Norm. First of all, I'm just so grateful for this conversation. And what you do for the community is huge. It's very valued. And you know, it's very clear to me that 
this this is a type of service that we were talking about earlier folks can you know reach out to me on twitter at uh, abe prasanna they can also see me at the rome slack where i'm usually i like to call myself the johnny on the spot just like waiting there to be the first one to reply to anyone's questions so <laughs> a, a little bit of like the first level rome support if you will so yes i'm 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 out there and i'm happy to help if you have any questions about how to navigate you know extensions themes workflows happy to point you to the right folks i'm a connector i enjoy connecting folks to like you know others so i'm happy to do that Awesome. And with that being said, you can always find Abe in those main two sources, Twitter and Slack. And I'll have you know, personal, first-hand experience, very, very active. So don't worry. <laughs> if you're going to reach out for any questions, I'm sure he'll be able to answer them. And with that being said, Abe, thank you so much. And I will see you in Twitter or Slack. Sounds great, my friend. Thank you for listening to the show. Make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app. And for a full version of the show notes to this episode, you can check out the public Rome graph. The link to that will be in the description right below. For more updates, comments, feedback, and suggestions, you can reach out to me at RomeFM on Twitter. Keep roaming your thoughts, and I will see you in the next episode. Take care.